The Springfield Three, a bizarre and disturbing case involving the disappearance of three women from a house in Springfield, Missouri. The FBI says this case stands alone. And having them taken from their house, leaving no signs of anything. No DNA, no nothing, no struggle. They were just, it's like they were almost backing up. That's Janice Moore McCall, mother of one of the missing three, who has never given up hope. I can't give up. There's no way you can give up when it's your child and you think that there might be a possibility of seeing her again. You know, I realize it may be in heaven, but I'd prefer it to be here. This podcast is her last interview. She's hoping that someone out there who knows something will listen to this. You know, if you could give us a message, somehow get a message to the police department or the FBI or the sheriff's office, anything that would tell us exactly where they were or how to find her or what happened, and not have it be hearsay, please call and let us know. Let us know what it is, because I don't want to go to my grave not knowing. More importantly, Janice prays her daughter is still alive somewhere. What would you say to her if by that here's chance she's listening? I would say, Stacy, I will never, ever give up on finding you. Before we dive into the case, I want to remind you that this is for mature audiences and still might not be for everyone. I'll post case pictures on my website, truecrimedeadline.com, and on Facebook and Instagram and my YouTube channel under the same name. After the podcast, I have a shout out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. It really helps independent podcasts like this get noticed. And if you're new here, thank you. Please consider hitting subscribe. Well, more on that after the case. The Springfield Three. Investigators, you're on deadline. From the social distancing studios in Las Vegas, Nevada, to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline, a podcast discussing cold cases, murder, mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now your host, a man who sings happy birthday twice when washing his hands, Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Announcer Man, and thank you, investigators, for joining me for episode 33, Mystery the Springfield 3. This is a case that makes no sense, I have to be honest with you. How the women disappeared, who discovered them missing, and the potential evidence that vanished the next day, and the potential leads that should still be investigated. By the title of this episode, it's pretty obvious where this case takes place. It's Springfield, Missouri, the third largest city in Missouri, with about 167,000 residents. Nicknamed Queen of the Ozarks, it's located 16 hours from Tulsa, Oklahoma, 9 from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and 21 from the Arch in St. Louis. Springfield has a charming downtown. There's old brick buildings and old street lights a movie theater, a courthouse. This is a place where people would say hello when they pass you on the street. You would feel safe here, which is probably why Janice Moore McCall liked living here. It was a safe place to raise her family, including her daughter, Stacy. I think I was in shock. Janice tells me she remembers June 6, 1992, like it was yesterday. 
Her 18-year-old daughter Stacy and her daughter's 19-year-old friend Suzanne Streeter, or Susie as her friends called her, had just graduated from Kickapoo High School, home of the Kickapoo Chiefs. Janice tells me they were so excited. They decided to celebrate by going to a few graduation parties and then the water park the next day. They never made it to the water park. I really appreciate your time. And I know that you said that you had recently done some some press. I guess that ever since the, the story really started unfolding, you've always put yourself out there and you've never given up. That's correct. I, I can't give up. There's no way you can give up when it's your child and you think that there might be a possibility of seeing her again. You know, I realize it may be in heaven, but I'd prefer it to be here. And talk to me about what you remember about that initial going to the house and discovering that um, this mystery started to unfold, her car's there, all of her belongings. When did you first know that there was something wrong? Well, they graduated on Saturday night. And Sunday, they were going to go to Whitewater. But she said, Whitewater's down in Branson, about 35, 40 miles from here. So she told me that she would call me before she left. And she also, they were thinking about going to spend the night in Branson that night. And I said, I don't want you to go down there to spend the night. I said, there's just too much risk going down there, especially on graduation night on a Saturday night when there's all kinds of things going on. So uh, she called me at 1030 and said, Mom, I'm not going to go to Branson. I'm going to stay at Janelle's. And Janelle was her best friend. And she tended to go over there and they would do things. And she had some other friends and Susie, who she hadn't really ran around with in many years, probably about eight, just because they ran in different crowds. Susie was there, but they were renewing their friendship, if I understand correctly. And they were going to go to Janelle's and stay there, and they were going to have a party over at the house next door to Janelle's, which is probably mm, probably two or three blocks. It's, it's about two short blocks, but it's just right next door. So um, they went to the party, to my knowledge, and they were all doing fine, and they were going to spend the night at at Brian's house. This was the young man whose house it was. Uh, His parents were not there right then. And he decided that he was going to get into too much trouble if he did have all of them spend the night. So he, he told them they couldn't spend the night and they decided to go back down to Janelle's house. Janelle's house was, as I said, real close and it was extremely upsetting to her that they had to go down there and change all their plans around, but they did. And Janelle's family had out-of-town company from Kansas, and they had several of them there that were spending the night. So all the kids that were going to end up spending the night at Janelle's, which was several, including Susie and Stacy and um, Mike, Janelle's boyfriend, and I think several other young people were going to be there. Well, <clears throat> Stacy and Susie were given a piece of the floor to sleep on and a pillow. And 
you know, that's no big deal when they're all just going to camp out there together. Here's the timeline in the case. June 6, 1992 was graduation. Stacy and Susie celebrated by going to a few parties. They were last seen at 2 in the morning, June 7th. They were planning to spend the night at their friend Janelle Kirby's house and then go to the water park the next morning, but then decided it was too crowded at the party. So they went to Streeter's house located at 1717 East Del Mar Street. Susie lived with her mother, Cheryl Levitt. Cheryl was a 47-year-old single mom who worked as a hairstylist and was a neat freak, if you ask anybody. Cheryl had called a friend that night at around 11, and they talked about painting an old armoire dresser. And that's all we know. They just up and vanished. The next morning, the friends who saw Stacy and Susie last at the party went looking for them, because Stacy and Susie didn't show up to Janelle Kirby's house in the morning. They were all planning to meet up there, then go to the water park. Now, when the friends arrived, they found three cars in the driveway. The porch light was broken. The door was unlocked, so they let themselves inside. They didn't think anything of it. There was no sign of the three women. The beds were made. Their purses were in a pile on the floor. Susie's clothes were actually neatly folded on the floor. No signs of struggle. No signs anything was wrong, except Susie's dog, a Yorkshire Terrier named Cinnamon, was freaking out. And the porch light out front was broken. So Janelle's boyfriend decided to grab a dustpan and broom and clean it up. Janelle fed the dog, and then the phone rang. She told police that a man was on the other end, making sexual comments and breathing heavy. She immediately hung up, and the phone rang again. It was the same guy. At this point, no one knows what's going on. Hours go by, and now Stacy's mom, Janice, shows up at the house. She notices the cars out front, the purses there, the money, the wallets, her daughter's clothing, and also Cheryl's cigarettes. Cheryl never left her cigarettes behind. Instantly, she knows something is very wrong and reaches for the phone to call police. After she calls police, Janice notices that there's a voicemail, a blinking light on the answering machine. She touches the button and plays it. She tells police that it was very strange. Whatever was on this message, she hasn't spoken about publicly, but she says it's strange. But before they can listen to it, she accidentally erases the message. Police would later say that they believe it contained a clue. 16 hours go by now, and police say 15 to 20 people have walked through the home before they could process it as a crime scene. The following days, Janice didn't sleep. She was passing out flyers at local grocery stores, at shops on Main Street, talking to anybody who would listen. And then she started doing lots of local news interviews as the story began to gain traction. Three women in Springfield, Missouri, up and vanished. From KYTV, Springfield, Missouri, this is KY3 News at 6. 
The last time anyone saw Susan Streeter or Stacy McCall was over the weekend at this house in Battlefield. The girls had gathered here with some friends after graduating from Kickapoo High School on Saturday. Springfield police have notified law enforcement agencies in the surrounding area and in neighboring states, hoping someone will have an idea of what happened to these three women. Also discounted are any connections with other apparent abductions in Missouri. Additional photos of the Springfield women were released today. Now, when you first learned that they were all missing, um, I've seen clips of you on the news. You're putting flyers up. You're asking grocers to, to put, a, put the flyers in the bags. I'm Mrs. McCall, and this is my daughter. Okay. And they're missing, and we'd like to put posters in your windows, on your doors. Okay. I feel like I'm in a bad dream. I want to pinch myself and wake myself up, but I'm not asleep. I saw her graduate Saturday night. We were there. And now she's gone. We don't know where. You seem so strong. How were you able to, to just be so strong? Uh, I have no idea. I think I was in shock. And I just went through the motions. And I knew that I wanted to get out the most information that I could. We had watched the movie Adam early in the week with all three of my daughters. And... I said there was no way I could go through what John Walsh and Reve Walsh went through when they lost their son. I said, I don't know how a parent can ever do that. And the one thing that I took from that thing was not to get too emotional on TV. Mm. If you get an interview, give your interview. Do it with uh, as much poise as you can, but don't, don't break down. This is one thing that one of the detectives told me and my husband because they said, remember, these people may be holding Stacy and Susie against their will and letting them watch all this. Well, I knew that if Susie and Stacy and Cheryl were watching this and heard me and heard me break down a lot, that that would make it harder for them. So and when's like, the last time that you have spoken to any investigators, is there anything new that um, we wouldn't already know as the general public? Not really, not really. I um, I have had some calls and I haven't returned them yet. The calls, you know, want to give me information, but they've done this for years, and sometimes they sound normal and sometimes they don't. Sometimes I know they can't be true. Um, with with some of the, let's say, particulars that they give me. So I need to meet with two or three families now, not families, but people with interest that want to contact me and want to review the case and have them tell me what they have been told, either by a relative or by overhearing it. And, you know, overhearing it doesn't mean anything. And probably not, neither does somebody, somebody's relative saying uh, that they knew what happened and that this was going on and they took them here and they did, you know, some pretty gory details. And I just, I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to put that out to the public. Over the years, there has been several conspiracy theories as to what happened to the Springfield Three. Police dug at a cave. 
They dug at an old abandoned farmhouse and searched a river, each time coming up empty-handed. Then in 1996, a man convicted of stalking several women and murdering a woman in Florida made a claim he knew what happened to Stacy, Susie, and Cheryl. His name is Robert Craig Cox and happened to live in Springfield at the time of the crime. In prison, he started talking about the case. He said he knows what happened to the Springfield Three and claimed those bodies would never be found. When local reporter Dennis Graves from local station KY3 heard about the inmate and the possible connection, he traveled to the prison out of state where Cox was being held and started asking questions. His interview with Cox was later subpoenaed by authorities and taken to a grand jury. The grand jury, however, never handed down any charges. This man was supposed to die in Florida's electric chair. But in 1990, Robert Craig Cox was turned loose and returned to his hometown of Springfield, Missouri. Cox was here when Cheryl Levitt, Susie Streeter, and Stacy McCall vanished. For weeks, Dennis Graves has followed the violent trail of Robert Craig Cox through three states. He joins us now in the newsroom. Robert Craig Cox is just one of about 15 people that police are wanting to look at, so to speak. But what we've learned from several sources is that this guy stands out from that crowd of uh, possible suspects. Here you've got a man who walked off Florida's death row after spending five months with serial killer Ted Bundy, then went on to stalk and attack other women in other states and ended up back here in Springfield, Missouri, uh, when the women disappeared. That I recently reached out to Dennis Graves via email. He's retired now, and he wrote this. Matt, I'm flattered that you think that I might have helpful input on the case. I've been happily retired since 2004, and I reported all I know in my documentary on KY3 in Springfield back in the 90s. I still believe Robert Craig Cox abducted the women. Good luck on your project, Dennis. In the early 2000s, the interest in the case peaked again, after two women told police that they remembered a strange green van at the time of the disappearance. It was seen last at a concrete company. Police brought in cadaver dogs who hit on three spots. Investigators even recovered bones at the site, but testing later determined that they were there far longer than the Springfield Three had been missing. The next year, tips led police to a farm. They dug huge holes and recovered possible blood evidence and part of a green vehicle. That evidence was taken to a lab, but determined to be inconclusive. So it'd be interesting to have it tested today. The most shocking theory, and one that still needs to be investigated in my opinion, is the parking garage at the Cox Hospital. In 2007, investigators received a tip that the Springfield Three were buried under the parking garage. But police said that the person who reported the tip provided no evidence or logical reasoning behind the theory. They said it would be too costly to dig up and said the parking garage was built a year after the women went missing. So they thought that it was a strong likelihood that the construction workers who worked on the parking garage would have unearthed the bodies if they were in fact buried there. That's when a reporter by the name of Kathy Baird started looking into the case. She ran across a tip about the Cox Hospital parking garage and enlisted the help of Rick Nolan, a mechanical engineer. Nolan was able to scan a corner of the parking garage with a ground-penetrating radar and found three anomalies, roughly the same size. Two of those anomalies were parallel. The third, 
perpendicular. Where would you like to see the investigation revisited? I know that there have been a lot of theories out there, including that parking garage. Is there anything that you want revisited? I don't want the parking garage revisited, really, unless they're just going to, if they will actually go out and take some core samples above the area and put an end to that, because that was all a psychic thing from someone up in Wisconsin that thought he, he knew where they were. And he gave them information and people kind of pinpointed an area. I think he did it by longitude and latitude. I don't know. Oh, I thought it was that investigative reporter that was like looking into the case and then she hired someone to use well, the machine. Kathy first heard it from Kenneth Young. And he, he is a wannabe psychic and he had been writing me letters and I wouldn't return phone calls or answer phone calls because he had no idea. He was he was telling me for a while that they were um, they were targeted because Stacy lived on Verona and it had something to do with Shakespeare. I mean he was really out of there. So I didn't believe him and then he started talking to Kathy who was this independent reporter, and she took it under her wing, and she decided it was going to be under Cox parking lot. Well, Cox parking lot wasn't even started at that time. They were dreaming of it, and they were getting ready to make it, but it hadn't been dug out or anything else. They wouldn't have been pouring cement or anything else over it. So if if they were killed before then, they would be buried underneath the dirt, not underneath the cement, which they say that this man said that this could tell them exactly where they were. Now, he saw something, but what if it's just a piece of cloth and a board or something, you know, how they throw trash in before they pour cement? And it could be that thing. I really don't think it's there because of this. And Cox will let us investigate if the police department wants to. But the police department said, you know, we don't believe it could be there because of the circumstances. When I reached out to Kathy Baird, who runs the Facebook group about the case, she had fellow administrator Sandy Dickerson write me back, quote this. At this point in time, Kathy and I have invested years in collecting information on the case and continue to do so. However, at this point in time, We are not participating in any interviews, podcasts, or television programs about the case. We will notify you if this should change in the future. Good luck with your project and future endeavors, Sandy Dickerson and Kathy Baird. Now, a few years back, a television program by the name of True Crime Daily interviewed Kathy about this case and her theory about the parking garage. It kind of went south. Kathy wanted to be interviewed to help the case, she said. But producers said that she didn't want to answer any questions about the case. And this happened. What are Kim Goldman asks Kathy who she believes murdered the women and buried their bodies under the parking lot. Our interview takes a bizarre and unexpected turn. Do you have strong theories of what happened to Cheryl, Susie and Stacy? I believe I know what happened. I believe they were killed before morning. What do you believe the motives were for the people that took Stacy, Cheryl, and Susie? I, I'm not going to talk about that. 
why are you doing this interview with us? Frustration boils over, and then our producer jumps in. I continue to be confused why we're doing this interview. They've already said that. I mean, they... Make it, you know what? I've been doing this a long time. It's not real clear. Because you're talking in code. Sorry, you don't think that I'm giving you the answers that you need or you want. But I live here. And, yeah, I'm afraid for my safety. The case of the Springfield Three is still listed on the Springfield Police Department website under cold cases. The original investigators have all retired, and a few recently assigned to the case have been promoted. But Springfield Police promised Janice that they haven't given up. In fact, they have an entire room of evidence and posters dedicated to this case. They say that they plan to have a fresh set of eyes look over the evidence and all the documents in the very near future. Now, over the years, FBI, Missouri State Patrol, and local law enforcement have extensively compiled over 27,000 documents on this case. They have investigated the backgrounds of the three women and looked into thousands of tips with no positive leads. I would rather have them start from the beginning with new eyes and not the pressure and not the police chief that was there. The police chief that we had then wanted to handle it his own way. He had a person who was a, you know, they've never had a case like this in Springfield. They've never had it anywhere because the FBI says this case stands alone. And having them taken from their house leaving no signs of anything, no um, no DNA, no nothing, no struggle. They were just, it's like they were almost vacuumed up. And sometimes I even think that maybe they were vacuumed up by a spaceship, you know. I would love for it to come back to Earth and bring Stacy and say, hey, this is the queen of our area. She's, she's the queen of our our uh, empire that'd be perfect you know i don't believe that but it's as it's as logical as people saying that uh that they were taken by a certain person here in town and that they were taken to a barn and and mutilated and all these other things so i'd rather have some positives and the other thing that you have remain positive is you never declared your daughter legally dead because there is a chance that she could be alive. Is that correct? Yes. There is a hair's chance, just a small one, but there is a chance that she still could show. I mean, crazier things have happened. This has been 28 years, yes, but what if she was to walk in and and say hi, you know, and I know she's not going to be the same little girl that left here 28 years ago when she was 18 and very naive, but I can't declare her dead until we find either where she is or where her remains are. And that's what I've given the police. I've told them either you find Stacy or you find her remains before you do anything on closing this case. And what's your message to her? What would you say to her? And what would you say to her if by that hair's chance she's listening? I would say, Stacy, 
I will never, ever give up on finding you. I will never be disappointed in you, and I will never turn you away. You are our daughter. You're our baby. And no matter what has happened in the last 28 years, we want you back. And I love her so much. If someone has any information that, that could help solve this mystery and bring you a little bit of peace, what is your message to that person? You know, if you could give us the message, somehow get a message to the police department or the FBI or the sheriff's office, anything that would tell us exactly where they were or how to find her or what happened and not have it be hearsay, please call and let us know. Let us know what it is because I don't want to go to my grave not knowing. I appreciate you opening up and, and talking to me and um, letting the listeners um, listen to the case. And I really do hope that you get an answer. And I'm so sorry that you've gone through this for so long. I really am. Thank you. I appreciate it, Matt. I have pictures of Cheryl Levitt, Stacy McCall, and Suzanne, who goes by Susie Streeter, on my website, True Crime Deadline. Anyone with information in the case is encouraged to call the Springfield Police Department at 417-864-1810. There is a cash reward of more than $42,000 for information leading to an arrest in this case. Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie? Good boy. Now a post-episode shout-out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Reviews really help a podcast like this one get recognized and grow. And it's a cool way for you to be part of the show because you get a shout-out. So this week, I give a shout-out to Ace Big Man Fan, who writes this. Can't get enough of MJ. Awesome podcast. It has a great pace to it. Keep it coming. The next one comes from M-Day who writes, subscribe immediately, exclamation mark. Outstanding journalism creates a strong base for this stunning dive into stories of mystery and intrigue, uniquely told in a way that only Matt can do. I've really enjoyed the journey with you. And don't forget, subscribe to my social media channels and my website, truecrimedeadline.com, where you can learn about getting free swag and stickers. Investigators, until next time.